This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Well, I'm so, I'm so uh, glad to be here. I've, I've known about Libri for a long time. My, my wife came here many, many years ago. And it was a transformative experience for her. It really changed her for the better. So to see it as a sanctuary in a place where really good things happen. Thank you, Sarah, for also being so kind and welcoming. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'm Joel. I am a Birmingham-based uh, filmmaker and writer. And I make different kinds of films. Um, I've made a uh, medieval rap film. Uh, which was shot in and around uh, the Midlands. And so it was a, a, a film where 100% of the dialogue is in, is in the form of spoken word and rap, but uh, a medieval story. Um, I, start, I, I grew up in Ireland and Germany, uh, everywhere people thinking that I'm from somewhere else. Um, and now I've been living in Birmingham for my whole, really my whole adult life, and I've been here, there for a long time. So I love and hate Birmingham. And as time goes on, Birmingham continues to remain a very inspiring place to be, but it's increasingly frustrating. And the city has gone bankrupt, so it means the arts funding has now completely uh, dwindled, and next year they're going to have zero arts funding. So it's, it's, it's a hard to, place to be an artist. Um, I've also made um, lots of documentaries. I made this film, which was a uh, about uh, serious youth violence in Birmingham. And I'm currently working on a script for this project, which doesn't exist yet, which is about the ultimate goth, teenage goth love story, um, which I'm ho hoping to shoot in South Wales in, in, in the future. So uh, I think it's relevant when you're talking about parenting to see that I am in, I'm a parent. I really hope that this is going to be very meaningful whether you're a parent or not. It's not this is not going to be parenting tips, by the way. Um, but the relationship between being a parent and the interaction between the generations and how cinema is related to that. So my two daughters are Evie and Josie. Evie is almost 18 and Josie is 7. Um, let's kickstart things by taking just a few minutes with the person next to you to consider this. What was the first film you remember really enjoying and what did you like about it? It would be lovely if some of you would be willing to just share just a moment from the conversation, the title of a film and why you enjoyed it. Um, about this pirate who um, <coughs> is, is 
are in trouble financially, and so he comes back as a ghost to help. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Toby Maguire, Spider-Man. Can you repeat for us what the best so we can hear? It was Toby Maguire, Spider-Man. And why did you enjoy it? Toby Maguire. It was like, I think it was the first superhero movie that I saw. And I remember being excited that I was allowed to see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very good. We didn't watch many films mm -hmm. as a child. No. And uh, we, we, I went to see The Sound of Music. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And it blew me away. Mm -hmm. Just the music and the story. Mm. Those are good. It's, it's interesting, like, of course we can be transformed at any time in our lives, but there is something about the formative years where you're being formed, where that things stick with you in a different way. Um, it's inevitable that music that resonates with you in your formative years kind of sticks with you in a different way, even to new music that you might really enjoy. You've got to have a different relationship with it. I think it's at this point I need to bring in uh, a little quote from Martin Shaw. A story wishes you to tarry. How can you really get to know it if you are striding from bullet point to bullet point, if you are treating the story only as a map? If you, if, that may frustrate you if you are treating the story only as a map. An experienced storyteller knows that to understand a tale, first they have to get lost in it. So we'll, we'll, we'll return to this idea. A story actually wishes you to tarry. It wishes you to reflect, to stick, to stay, to be in that space. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these two, these two people. Uh, at this point, they're roughly the same age. And at the time, the person over here, me, has seen a handful of films, hardly any. And Evie is my daughter, and uh, back at that age, she would have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of films by that age. So our experience of cinema was already very different, as in just from a, being very young, she had seen way more films than I had. Um, so that makes a big difference in how, you know, you know, our, our cinema experience was different, certainly, as kids. My parents um, were uh, from, uh, both from brethren backgrounds, and they didn't really go to the, the movies very often. Uh, that was not really their experience. Um, my dad uh, watched his first film when he was 19, and it was all over the musical. Uh, my mum was a big fan of musicals. Um, 
Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger films. Uh, yeah, I think they both had a subversive streak within them. My dad is from Northern Ireland. My mother's from California. Really, they should never have met unless they, there was some sense of adventure within them. And they met in, uh, in Galway, I believe, the west coast of Ireland. So uh, we will fast forward to this moment. This is me in Germany as a 12, maybe try to count the number of candles on the cake there. Um, but this is a, a, a moment where my parents got a TV for the first time and a VHS player. And so they decided what they were going to do is they were going to do a family film night. Now that strikes terror into certain people's hearts because family film, there's kind of a stigma attached to that. A family film is a film that no one enjoys. Uh, a film that really hits no one, right? It kind of misses everyone. Um, and so there was a certain amount of trepidation, but curiosity. My brother and I were thinking, okay, so what are we going to do? What is this uh, film? And to have a family film might was to order a VHS from a different country. It must be imported into Germany. Um, so it was like, it, it required some thinking. It wasn't just going to a video shop. It was like um, a, a bigger enterprise. So uh, we saw, the, the, we saw the, um, the, co the VHS cover and went, okay, so it's a black and white film. And we discovered it was set in just one room. That is not looking good. That seems quite boring. And it was this film, 12 Angry Men. And, uh, and so quite soon into the film, you got kind of really, got really immersed in it. I was like, wow, this is, this is really, parents have a really good taste in this film. Um, so like, wow, that was, that was amazing. That worked out. There was going to be another family film night. Uh, so what would it be? What could they drop on us? So here we go. That was the cover. I don't know. Is, is, that, is, that, is that a good sign or a bad sign? We saw the cover of that. Maybe. It could be terrible. It could be terrible. It could be good. But uh, here we go. So it was Capricorn 1, for those who haven't seen it, is a mid-70s film about a NASA actually faking the Mars landing. And um, so a conspiracy thriller, amazing film. Uh, Telesivales, uh, cussing and cursing. I was like, my parents decided to have a film that's got, what is going on? Uh, was, uh, it was very intense. And uh, so we were su pleasantly surprised. What could happen next after 12 Angry Men and Capricorn 1? Well, what happened next in Family Film Night was only the killing fields cry freedom and a man for all seasons. Uh, so, there, I mean, there, I don't know if you see some themes running through here, but certainly there was an intensity that I don't think my brother and I were expecting. Um, an expose of the brutal killings of more than a million people. Um, Steve Biko's struggle against apartheid. And the idea of Thomas, Sir Thomas More's a devout Catholic would he stick to his principles as he would face off against King uh, Henry VIII? Um, so, um, cinema was fulfilling different things, uh, I think, in my parents' life. My dad, 
when we lived in Galway, he went to go see this film, which is called, um, what's it called? It's called Flight of the Doves. Um, and there over there we have actually Singing in the Rain with uh, Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse. So there was this appreciation of the grit of historical drama, but also uh, the pure aesthetics of the musical. And um, you could call that bread and roses, that there was this idea of the grit of real life lived and also just beauty, that there, that was also a necessity. And, um, you know, just, just like saying, yeah, you should watch this film with Sid Charisse. If you remember Sid Charisse, this is who we're talking about. Having your mother say, you should watch this film. That's quite something, really. Um, so there seemed to be a, at least, um, whether my parents were planning it or not, a removing of the, the, the secular and the sacred. There was some sort of boundary that maybe I saw elsewhere that they were like, no, we don't need to have that boundary. Um, our much, most watched uh, family film is this film here, What's Up Doc, uh, with uh, Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. Um, I would say it was probably one of my most enjoyable, most satisfying uh, film experiences. Uh, screwball comedy when you're a kid and then uh, you, you discover that there's four suitcases. I don't know, has any, who here has seen What's Up Doc? Yeah. Uh, there's four different suitcases and they all get mixed up. Now that, as a kid, I thought that was freaking genius. I just thought like, how, ama how amazing, what, this is the best movie ever. I also did um, pee my pants laughing uh, on a, few, a few times. So I think that's a, a success. And we quote this film, you know, years and years later uh, in our family. And we quote the German version as well, because we, we wa I've watched it in English, and then we watched, for some, when we lived in Germany, I ended up watching it in German, so we'd, we actually quote some of the jokes. And when they translate it into German, they didn't translate it exactly the same, so the jokes have a different tone, which is wonderful. Um, did my parents always get it right? Well, we went to see um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Live and Let Die. Both of those gave me nightmares. So, as a, as a, as a parent, uh, there was no IMDb. You could not check in on, maybe you could confer with someone else who's seen the film, but you didn't know what you're taking your kid to see. You didn't know whether it was appropriate or not, or what it would do to them. So, another wonderful moment was uh, Star Wars related, seeing Return of the Jedi, and then I, this isn't a photo taken by me, but like we did after seeing the film, meet Peter Mayhew, who played Chewbacca. So that was that was an amazing day, uh, having those two things happen. Uh, I remember after coming out of the cinema after watching Groundhog Day with my dad, he said, "Oh, it's just like uh, Ecclesiastes, isn't it? It's about it's about paradox." Phil Connors learns early on life is vapor, meaningless, and it's followed on by this new sense of altruism, but the latter doesn't replace the former, but rather sits in tension. So this meaninglessness and altruism sits together. And I thought, wow, okay, that, this is a, what my dad saw when he saw this film, Ecclesiastes. And so my parents still recommend films to us. Uh, that's the lady in the van and the film Brooklyn.
But ultimately, I I've, I've keep, keep on quizzing them and saying, did you do this on purpose? You know when you do those family film nights, did you, why did you choose the films that you did? I don't know. I was, are you serious? You didn't do that on purpose. Don't, don't you think that it had an impact on us? I think one of the things that was interesting about those, those days was they, they weren't like Christian films. You know, uh, my, my parents were involved in promoting the Jesus film in the 1970s. And so uh, when the premiere of the Jesus film showed in Ireland, uh, there's me talking to Brian Deacon, the actor. And so they would, they, you'd have thought that they would have some sort of connection to, to these Christian films or, or you were, let's just say faith films. But the films that they seemed to really be pointing us towards were not necessarily the, fake, uh, the, the faith films. And at that point, I, little did I know that, that's, that some of the so-called secular, um, you know, the, the, some of the greatest directors, the masters of cinema, were actually Christians like Tarkovsky and um, Malik and Vim Benders. I didn't realize that those people were actually Christians. So um, this is a few little things that I learned. And then we're going to move on to talk about Evie and her experience. Um, my parents were communicating that dissent was a positive thing, that standing for truth and standing against the consensus, if necessary, was honorable and worthy. You don't have to be complicit, and conviction and courage really, really matter. And um, so you see that in Aaron Brockovich uh, in 12 Angry Men, um, Michael Clayton, over and over again in films that are not faith films, you see these amazing moments of people standing for, for truth. So um, I think that my brother and I have kind of, we, we, we tend to have a bent towards whistleblowers and we're, we tend to be, you know, people that are a little bit more interested in conspiracies. And we're like saying to my mom and dad, you did it. Um, maybe not just you, but you certainly set us on that path of actually standing up for those who are kind of trying to st take a stand for things that they believe in. Does this make sense? So, uh, let's talk about Evie. Um, we'll go back to uh, 2013. I had a really, really silly idea. I was like, I'm going to watch a film every month with Evie, and we're gonna just choose a different decade of cinema, and we'll just, we'll just choose some of the best things. And so, when I say 2013, Bear in mind, at this point, she's only like six years old. Um, and so we started off, of course, with Doug Soup, which is uh, a, a, a screwball comedy, but it's also a political film. And uh, as we were watching, I was like, I think I've made a mistake. I, I mean, this seems, what am, I, what am I doing? How many stars would you give this, Evie? And she's like, well, I think it's a three-star film. Well, that's good. So she is enjoying it. She is enjoying the Marx Brothers. Um, but really, her experience of, of film started with Horton Hears a Who, uh, which I think there's some all kinds of layers of, to Horton. Who's seen Horton Hears a Who, the movie? 
it's a layered film. It doesn't seem like it is. There's some really beautiful things in it, but it's interesting that one of the things, um, the subplots, is that the mayor of Whoville has 96 daughters, and yet the person who gets attention in his life is his son. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, at three years old, Evie watched um, the film Up, which she really picked up on the melancholy of it. And I think for about a week after, she had this kind of melancholy in there. And then Curious George, which she liked. But it's interesting because it's like, it really seems to just revel in colonialism. And, uh, and it mocks the villain's poor relationship with his dad. And the more times I watched, every single time I watched it, I felt more and more like a kind of a, oh, this is, this is a horrible thing. That the villain is a villain partly because of the terrible relationship he has with his father. Um, we also got into Totoro, um, The Cat Returns, and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, which these felt much more refreshing experiences watching this with, with Evie. You have uh, girls as heroes. Uh, dads are empowering their kids. That felt really cool. And where dads and families ask for and receive forgiveness. Who's seen Fantastic Mr. Fox? Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. So let's just say I, I just kind of gave up on that, that silly idea I had. I just like, really? We're really going to watch Seven Samurai? Really? Are we going to... How is she even going to get Galaxy Quest if she hasn't seen any Star Trek? I'm an idiot, you know? You only, uh, Galaxy Quest is only funny if you're already familiar with Star Trek. So what am I going to do? Sit a, a seven or eight-year-old down and get through all the Star Trek? Very, very um, foolish. You know, now is not the time for her to watch Wings of Desire or Tree of Life, you know? So um, I, did, I did make a little list called Watch It, Evie. And just thinking, you know, actually, some of the best experiences you have are, is, is when you discover a film by yourself. It's not that someone's told you to watch it. You just discover it by yourself. Maybe that's the most satisfying thing. Take a step back, Joel. Don't try to kind of uh, somehow be the curator of your child's cinema experience. Just let them discover things. Maybe she'll, she'll watch some of these movies. And so I scrapped the plan. And then a little... So many years later, two cool things happened. One was that, that my taste in cinema and Evie's taste in cinema started to converge more, just naturally. And two, uh, we started using Letterboxd, which is just a, a little kind of an app, uh, where, um, you know, a little place where you can make a little film diary or make film lists. And, um, and so there you go. There, there's my... You know, some of my favorite films right there. there. There's, And then a few years later, Evie made her letterboxed account, set up her letterboxed account. And so it became this place where uh, we, would, we would actually use that to make lists for each other. And it started being a lovely place for dialogue between us. So I'm very grateful for letterboxed. Here are a few of Evie's lists. Uh, she's really into the Muppets. She really loved everything, everywhere, all at once. She loved uh, Barbie and Bottoms. I don't know. Who, I have not seen Bottoms yet. Apparently, it's uh, 
it's pretty intense and, and very, very rude. Um, so she used to be really sensitive to scary things. And yet I think as time has gone on, obviously as she's almost become an adult, she can take things that have got that sense of tragedy and sorrow and, and difficulty. And uh, she and her friends recently went to go watch The Iron Claw, uh, which is a, a really sad movie, which she said, yeah, it was brilliant. It was really, really sad. My, friend, my friends were crying, and I felt sorry for them. Uh, but I found it was really moving and meaningful. So that's, that's interesting. Um, so I think there is a pattern to, to Evie's, the things that Evie enjoys, uh, if, I, if I'm trying to, is that she loves things that are about community, togetherness, restoration, things that are surreal, uh, joy, and raw emotions. I think those are the things that I see. And I think even her whole love of Muppets is to do with this idea of togetherness uh, that really resonates with her. Um, so... Uh, we went to go watch Asteroid City together. Um, has anyone here seen Asteroid City? A few people, yeah? It's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting film because within the first five minutes of the film, a narrator tells you that you're inside a play and that person in the play says that you're inside a film and that people in the film say you're inside. So, so within a few first few minutes, it's like quite confusing uh, because there's layers of fiction and it's really highly stylized. If you've watched Wes Anderson films, there's, there's a particular style. And Wes Anderson obviously was like, hey, everyone, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to go way, way into style. And so people talk about Asteroid City as a film which is really style and very little substance. And um, he's much loved and ridiculed. Um, when I talked about it with Evie afterwards, she was really emotional. She said, I cried during the film. And I, the, the connection that this, this man here is going through a grief. And despite it being a comedy, and there's loads of comedy scenes, Evie was resonating with Jason, Jason Schwartzman's character's grief. And I was like, wow, that's, that's beautiful. You're, you're, you've got a level of sensitivity that I don't think other people have got. And she said that the style completely complemented the substance of it. So, there was that kind of overbearing person, dad that I was early on, attempting to get through the cinema classics. I will be your, your curator. And I think I've, you bring it all the way back to this idea of maybe just, maybe just one question. I think when you do your film festival or when you're in Labrie talking about any form of art, Sometimes it's just one question is all you need, and it just has to be the right question. Um, I'm not necessarily the king of that, but there's there, I'm, every once in a while you meet someone who's just amazing at asking just the right question, and it opens up a, a whole conversation. Do you know what I mean? Just um, I showed this film at a conference, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And we got on to this. This was the question. Does this film strike you as pessimistic? It was a riot of a discussion. Complete disagreement. In fact, people were shocked by each other's opinions. Genuinely, like, shocked that they had the opposite of opinion. 
whether it was a pessimistic or optimistic film. I don't know if it was the right question, but it certainly got the conversation going. Um, what is the heart of this movie beating for? I've noticed when people talk about everything, everywhere, all at once, they talk about, you, they're almost describing completely different movies to one another. It's really interesting. What is, what is this actually about? I put off for many years watching the film The Limey by Steven Soderbergh because I thought British gangster film is just going to be gritty and mean-spirited and just deeply unpleasant and kind of heartless. Uh, and that's not what the film is at all. Uh, it, it, um, I was mesmerized. The first thing that I thought when I finished watching The Limey was I should watch that film immediately again. That was like my immediate desire was to, I want to watch it. So how does this film subvert our expectations of the genre? And I think even, watch the trailer for The Limey, if you, if you find out on YouTube, watch the trailer. Because the trailer is like to, it's, they, it's like they're trying to get people into the cinema on the fact that it was a gangster film, but I think there's something else going on. If you go on YouTube, there's lots of this, ending explained. Ending explained, that's what you need. And at the best end of, the best version of ending explained is someone like Thomas Flight. I don't know if anyone has watched any Thomas Flight um, video essays who does deeper analysis on films. Um, really thoughtful person, wonderful analysis. And yet still, if you go back to Mar our friend Martin Shaw, he says, don't offer commentary on what a myth is until you've traveled 100 miles in its kayak. Don't find out what you think from YouTube. Your mind is stimulated, but the soul not so much. The storytelling is like a kind of praying. And I think that's a beautiful thing, the idea of the story wants you to tarry, wishes you to tarry. And prayer can be a, a enterprise, it can be a rhythm of life. It is not something that you just tick off and get on with your day. It's something where you think and you ruminate. And I think this is uh, with, you know, I do like Thomas Flight, and yet I think both myself and Evie have got the sometimes a little bit of a temptation to go, oh, that was a great movie. Let's go and see what other people think about it. Instead of, no, no, the, the, the film wants you to just think, especially a film which is unsatisfying. I don't, has anyone seen Fight, Fight Club? You see two different, very, very well-presented philosophies of life, and the film kind, I feel, kind of leaves with a, with a punch, but like a little bit of emptiness, and you're like, oh, that's very, very unsatisfying. And maybe that's what the filmmaker was trying to do, was trying to be unsatisfying. Um, let me think. I could, I, we could talk about lots of different films where, where the unsatisfaction is baked in. It's an intended thing. Does anyone have an idea of like a film where they felt that was very unsatisfying? The Italian Job. Yes. Yes. That's a great example. And you're, yeah. And um, 
stuck on the edge of a cliff, and maybe you continue the film in your mind, in your, 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 your handed the, the, the story to continue with it. So, um, these are some of what I see as some of the, the, the opportunities um, as a parent of what cinema can do. Uh, expansion of our horizons. Um, you get to spend time with uh, someone from an Amazonian tribe and get their perspective on life. Uh, I don't know if anyone's seen Embrace of the Serpent. Anyone seen that movie? Um, there's a wonderful moment where this Western explorer, this is a story told from a Brazilian shaman's point of view um, and not a Westerner coming to uh, th their point of view. There's this moment where this, this Westerner has got a phonograph which he's carried on his back through the jungle and the the shaman is, just finds it really funny. Why are you carrying this big box with you? Uh, and it was almost this kind of a sense of like, you're burdened by all these things you have to carry with you, all your possessions. I don't need those kinds of things. And they sit on a starry night by a campfire and he gets this record out and he plays a piece of music. And the spiritual connection between those men all of a sudden is really palpable. The, the shaman immediately understands that the music has got a spiritual power and has got a kind of a... a and so I was like, wow, this, this is a really unique moment in, in film. And so I would highly recommend uh, Embrace of the Serpent. Expansion and disruption. I think we need to get our ideas and worldview disrupted, and that's one wonderful thing about cinema. It, it completely has the capacity to disrupt our thinking and, and our expectations. Empathy and solidarity. I think when you're uh, a kid in those formative years and you feel like I'm the only person going through this thing, over and over again, a film comes along uh, which to you and ma makes you go, oh, wait a moment, I'm not by myself. And it's a really lovely thing to feel the embrace of a story and a myth that connects with you. Um, and you feel a sense of solidarity with, with other people. Uh, has, has anyone got to see I'm No Longer Here, Mexican film? Um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, cinema has, uh, gets you to help share with your kids that joy and grief are part of life. They're both really important. And that it can happen within the same, same movie. Also that bread and roses both are important. I think that's something I got from my parents that Aesthetics, beauty, pleasure were important. Who here has seen Babette's Feast? Yeah. And also that goodness and mercy can show up anywhere.
that's a wonderful thing about cinema, is that in the most forlorn, hopeless movie, you can have moments of amazing mercy and goodness where you weren't expecting it. I don't know who's seen the series uh, Band of Brothers. It came out in 2001. Uh, one of those episodes is like really potent. This, uh, this character played by uh, Donnie Wahlberg is constantly referring to his, uh, his, his superior saying, someone should lead these guys to do this and this and this. Someone should be leading them to do this. And eventually, halfway through the episode, his superior says to him, you realize that you're doing the leading. It's you. You're the person. You're the person who cares the most. And he just, ha he just didn't realize who he, who he was, that he was this leader. It was, it was a really beautiful moment uh, of, of humanity and like, in a way, kind of a realization of his skills and his gifts in the middle of a, of a horrible situation. So, there you go. There's, there's Evie and Josie together. And I think being patient and giving up on my foolish scheme uh, has worked out. I don't know quite what's going to happen next in terms of uh, the parenting with, with Josie, my younger kid. She's got a different, um, she has a different taste in film. When she was three or four old, she really liked really morbid things. She really wanted to watch scary things. Um, so as a parent, you're like, okay, so I, I understand your fascination, but, but also those are things that are going to stay in your mind because this is where you're being formed. Um, so what am I going to do uh, with Josie? Uh, I think she's become a little bit more sensible and sensitive as she's gotten a bit older. But she has about the capacity to watch about 40 minutes of a film, and then she gives up. Uh, so, But with Evie, it's become a really lovely thing now, a lovely practice. I love going to the, the cinema with Evie and trying to hold my tongue and just say, What's the, maybe, maybe what's the one question that we can ask uh, of this film and what can we, we discover in it? So, here you go. Thank you. Good. So, Joel, what we normally do is give people um, time just to chat amongst themselves yeah. a bit. You can, anything that struck you think of those um, categories you had like the goodness and mercy can show up anywhere or the bread and roses and films maybe that come to your mind that think that show those or yeah your own experiences anything yeah anything that's come up so just have a chat and then we'll chat for five minutes and mm. then we can ask Joel some questions mm. if that's okay yeah that's great thanks very much yeah. for that it was thank lovely. you okay so just yeah, have a chat, things you might want to ask Joel, maybe as a parent, maybe as a watcher of films. Mm. Not everyone's a parent here, but think about, yeah. yeah. Who has got some questions they'd like to ask Joel? And um, yeah, we got one at the back. I can't see who you are. Paul. Paul. Hi, Paul. Sorry, I put my glasses. <laughs> Paul, you have a question. Yeah, you've got kids. Yes. <laughs> um, my, my oldest is six. Um, and... Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on kind of the relationship between cinema and books. 
Um, because books, I think, can, can do um, much the same of some of these categories that you gave, obviously through a different medium. Um, and we'll you know, hit kids with different abilities and their reading comprehensions and stuff like that. Um, but there's, in some ways, it feels like kids will be more drawn to the screen um, than books. And so I'm just curious, both from like a, uh, a medium perspective, but also as a parent, how do you balance cultivating a love of good books as well as um, good cinema? Do you, what, do you want to just repeat it just for the recording? Yes. How do you, as a parent, balance promoting the love of books with cinema or film watching? Um, oh, brilliant question. Brilliant, brilliant question. I don't think I'm doing a good job with that. <laughs> I don't think I'm doing a good job with that. I think Evie naturally enjoyed reading books and um, the pleasure of actually reading out loud and that ability when a kid suddenly becomes proficient in reading themselves, that is, it's so empowering that I think that just propelled her forwards towards really enjoying reading, which, ha which lasted for about how many years? It lasted for about eight years and then she just got, uh, I mean, she had a really hard time in, in mid-teens and I think uh, found solace and comfort and a bit, it was more like comfort food, uh, watching things. Um, whereas I think reading at that time in her life felt more like nutrition. You know, you don't want that. You don't want the healthy food at that point when you're kind of in a real low point. So I think, I hope that she kind of falls back in love with, with reading. But at the moment, she, she doesn't have that. So the balance, if there was one, I don't feel like it came from me. I think it came from some really good teachers at school. Are you, are you thinking, Paul, as well about um, like film versions of books or not necessarily? Not or, necessarily. Okay. Sometimes that, that overlaps. But, yeah. Um, Yeah. you saw on screen or that you read in this book that you can refer to. And yeah, so I just think that's very rich, mm -hmm. um, both for, for good literature and for good reading. Um, but my question has to do with, I, I just love what you said about finding the one good question. And I just wonder if you'd give, be able to give me any additional help or thoughts how to go about finding that question. <coughs> yeah. I don't know that I'm not good at that, but I want to become better. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think there's, there's other post-film questions that are very simple. I think lots of us do that, which are very simply, did you enjoy it? Did you like it? How did it make you feel? And what do you think? It's complete speculation, but what do you think the filmmakers were trying to do? And I think those three are, are pretty good for almost any film. In terms of finding the one question, um, I think the uh, films just hit you differently in different ways. Sometimes you're very aware of the music. Other times you, you forget that there's music in the film. And, and so it's almost like there's not definitely not one question that, there's not like a, a formula for finding the one question, I'm afraid. I don't think there's a formula. Um, the only thing I can recommend is finding someone who's good at it. Not necessarily yourself, just spending time with someone who just somehow has slightly uh, an askew view of the world and, and sees things from a different angle. And that, that's really refreshing. I, th I think the, the actual practice or the ritual of cinema going has changed for the worst with streaming. It is feasible that you can create your own culture where you're watching a film at home and then you spend time afterwards to talk about it. But I think Alimbo uh, talked about his sadness as an actor and as a film goer that you used to go to the cinema, then you'd go with your friends to a diner and talk about it. And that was like just as much as the cinema experience as seeing the film. The two things went together. And that was the joy, was, was both. But you're, you're, you very correctly pointed out that the togetherness, the together experience is actually uh, memorable and deeply meaningful in, in creating a new language. And, and sometimes that lovely thing where you, you reference something in a different context and only that other person gets it. It's very, having, almost having that secret language is a beautiful thing. It's one of the difficulties with now with obviously computers and streaming and everything is you can all in a family be in different rooms kind yes. of watching something different. So to be together is yeah is a good is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think to watch. Yeah, and the ability to stop a movie is both a good and a bad thing as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, Except for the subtitles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a very great philosopher called George Steiner who um, was involved in the arts. And I always remember just one thing stuck in my mind. He, he was talking about the different values of communication, if you might say, if you could call literature that. And um, he said that uh, trouble with film is that it's ephemeral. People don't really recall the deep lessons it's trying to mm. purvey, or like some directors are trying to purvey. Like, mm. So, uh, yeah, you can so the question is that film yeah. as a medium is ephemeral and so how, how would a filmmaker expect someone to actually get the deeper purpose? I mean, some films you've got to yeah. watch over and over and over and over again yeah. to get the message. Well, I think throughout all, all cinema history people have gone to watch a film over and over again. Um, Maybe there's been times in different places where people don't have the luxury of being allowed to do that. But, um, I mean, I think with biblical exposition, when you read a 
section of scripture a second time, that in itself you completely see it differently. So yeah, I think, I think regardless of the medium, there is something where you, you, can miss, you can miss the big lesson or you can miss the big thing. Uh, but I, I kind of feel like um, the, the, all the behind the scenes stuff uh, or, or finding out why a filmmaker made this, it's, all of that is, is pretty A film should really be able to stand up by itself and you should get something on some, some level the first time you watch it. I think if a, if a filmmaker is saying, I expect you to watch this multiple times, then I don't know, that feels a little, a little mean or a little, yeah, unfair somehow. But you know, I think you're right. I think that there's definitely filmmakers that are trying to say something and the film gets known for something that they weren't trying to say. Um, that's probably very likely. But the effect, I mean, the effect on us as the watch is not ephemeral, is it? It can be very, I mean, you can watch something once and it'll last a lifetime. Yes. Your kind of, yeah. Your imagination, I guess. And, yeah. yeah. Right, who, let's have a look. Mia at the back over there. Hi, I loved the letterbox um, catalog you had of the movie that we were watching. Yeah. And finding those themes of your daughter's film, did that inform your parenting or how you related those things that were important to her that she thought was interesting? Mm. Good question. So, do the themes that I see in my daughter's viewing habits inform anything with my parenting? I just think it, more than anything, it just shows me a little bit about who she is and, and what her values are which is a lovely thing to just see that. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting that she, she is into some very gritty things. She will say, yeah, Dad, I've just been listening to this uh, Tyler, the Creator album. Uh, this is what, the, and I'm like, wow, that, that's quite, quite tough stuff. And then she's really into the Muppets. <laughs> and that's like a lovely, this is her. Um, so I, I, I think I haven't quite, harnessed that really in terms of uh, no it's just nice to see where her values are at right. um, how do you handle the end credits during a documentary when you watch the film because those are the very end of yes modern film people just walk out um, certainly when you're watching an animated film and you see that there's been four animation studios in different parts of the world working on different parts of the film, it gives you an amazing respect for the logistics. Uh, I think the credits, I, I, don't, I don't think filmmakers really expect you to really be paying super attention for every single credit, you know. Um, but it's a beautiful time to just wind down isn't it? It's, it's like a really, I think it's a really important time to maybe absorb things a bit and form, start forming ideas and yeah, I, 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 like, I like to stay all the way through the credits. Who stays through the credits? Yes. It's like a transition zone, isn't it, between the intensity of the movie and then yeah. leaving and walking out in one way. Yeah. 
And occasionally get the Easter egg. Right, little extra, extra seat. Yeah, good. Yeah, Keith, and then we'll go over there. Yeah. I just wondered what making your own movies has taught you about cinema, and also maybe even the experience of watching other people watch your movies. Yes. I think. I think someone said. As a filmmaker, every film will figure out a way to break your heart. So my, my filmmaking journey is about disappointment. I feel like it's like I think I've made a few things that just about worked. A few music videos that just had a few good moments in them. But I feel like it's mainly I just look at why a particular project broke my heart in a different way. And the, you know, the films that I like the most you know, I, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, that would have been great. Had, on, had only the main actor not stepped out of the project and I had to find someone else to replace him. And the only reason I made that film was because of him. The only reason I was like, I can make this film now because he exists. And then he, he bowed out of the project. So to answer the second part of your question, I think it just makes me I'm just in awe of any film that gets completed, that is coherent. And uh, like a mediocre film is an amazing achievement. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Like a good film is even, wow, that's, that's um, yeah. So I, I have a lot of respect. And, and sometimes I think I envy when, when people in their, maybe in their early 20s at the start of a film career find a little, group of friends that are all have like really complementary skill sets and then 30 years later the same people are, are still working together. So I think the Coen brothers, I think they worked with the same people over and over again. Wes Anderson I think works with the same people and so he's like well, getting the band back together and everyone kind of knows what they're going to do and so they just get better and better at it. So yeah I think, so envy and disappointment <laughs> are the two things I Yes. Did you ask about other people watching your film? Or your oh, what, what, do, I'm, what do I learn from other people watching films? And what's that like? Um, it's, it's hard to tell. People tend to be nice to your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there was one, the film that I made, the medieval film, it was interesting when one person pointed out how they felt like the mindset of the people was, was pre-modern. And I found that I was like one of the, the bits of praise. I was like the actual way that they seemed to be thinking was pre-modern rather than, I mean, I remember watching that uh, Ridley Scott film, Kingdom of Heaven. Is that what it's called, Kingdom yeah. of Heaven? Yeah, yeah. Where it just felt like he had just taken 20th century, 21st century minds, but just placed them in a different era. It felt really false to me. So having, having just a little moment like that was good. That's what's wrong with of power. Oh, yeah, let's... It's like, well, yeah. one of the things that's wrong, yeah. isn't it? It's 21st century people, you know? Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, yes, we yeah, just here, and then we'll go to the back, but just in the middle, yeah. Can films do harm? Mm. Can, do you want to repeat? Can films do harm? Can films do harm? Yes, I think they can, yeah. 
I think, I think they can probably do harm even if they're, if they're good or bad art. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a really good example. Can you give us an example? What, where you, what are you thinking of? Yeah. Also, like, if uh, maybe children watching violent films could, could be... Could Absolutely. Be maybe a good example is the glorification of violence in The Matrix. Mm. Okay. That's a really... <laughs> That's a really good. That's a really good question. Can films do harm? I think that yes. I think they absolutely can, and I think it is uh, the power of of films. There is a power, if it, and if it can be used to uh, to when I think when things are are when when you make fun or or belittle humanity and what's tr truly human and. Um, I, th I think it's I think it's fine to make an insincere film. You know, I mean, there's films that are insincere and and brilliant because of, because of their insincerity, but that can be very exhausting if that's all the kind of film you got you get. I think part of why films are successful is because on some level, someone along the line, whether it's the writer or the director or the actor, there's a sincerity there, and you connect because you're like, oh, this is. There's something real here. So I think there's absolutely destructive films. Um, and, and obviously there's people that, that have been in films that have been traumatized. So think of things like The Shining. One of the actors has really horrible memories. You just, I think you just mentioned Kill Bill. And it was on Kill Bill that Uma Thurman started to hate Quentin Tarantino because of some of the stuff that happened in the making of the film. So I, I think... Films can be bad for the people in the films, especially, and, and viewers as well. Sexuality is a new phenomenon, really, isn't it? And that can be, um, it should be a private, a private thing between two people. To show that on a big screen over and over and over again. I mean, there's a scene in, I watched the other night, Gene Arthur and Joel McRae, there's a love scene in it, which is so stimulating, so beautiful so sexy, but all they do is hold hands. And mm. it's very wonderful. So there's no need for this, this blasting of, of, of our senses, is there? Well, I mean, there's... there's um, it, it, it is interesting when you see filmmakers and film professionals talk about their favorite films. They, they can mention films from any era, you know, they're there. But it's, it's, it's lovely when they point out these films that seems so subtle, and that other people would say is quite are quite boring, but they find them full of life, and they find a moment in it which just stay, stays with them. So, I mean, we can talk about the uh, you know salacious things, but actually, the film again. I think the films that most resonate with us are some that something that has a has a reality and a truth to it. Um, Sometimes the most banal films can actually have the most perniciously yeah. evil worldview in them. I mean, things that you yeah, 
sorry, I'm going to say rom-coms. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. a lot of them there. Yeah. I mean, I find, I find a lot of Disney films offensive. I find the, the philosophy yeah. behind them yeah. truly offensive. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Preach it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, somebody over there had a question. So somebody at the back had their hand up. Yeah. Uh, what uh, potentially in screen for someone else that you've watched yourself potentially would what? Yeah, I mean sometimes uh, the damage has already been done to to yourself by watching the film. Uh, um, yeah, it's a, it, that's a, that's a very good question. I think that uh, in recent times there's been a few films that I've seen that I think I'm so glad I saw that. That was really disturbing and distressing and that's changed me and I'm glad that I've been disturbed by it. Um, you mean sort of disturbed in a good way? In a disturbed in a good way. It's like, yeah. I mean, I, I, th I can think of a, a film, me and my wife went to see Selma and I, th I remember Danielle when she left the cinema there her conclusion was, I think there's some things I need to do which will get me to the place. And that to hear your wife say, yeah, I think I, that has really inspired me. I really need to change what I'm going to do and step up a gear. That that's quite, feels quite inspiring. Um, but disturbing is a part of the role of, of film, isn't it? It is. And it's, it's very hard to, what for one person, <coughs> it can just kind of roll off them if well, the other person would be traumatizing and, and be debilitating actually for, for them if they were to, to be confronted with something. So there's this definitely a sensitivity. If you're creating films for other people to watch, 
like if I was to ask, get a film for my parents to watch, I would have to be very careful of what film I would choose for them to watch. Um, Yeah. You're not defended from an image staying in your mind forever by being able to think it through and sort of yeah. contrast it with what you think is the truth about reality. And so I, I guess I'm yeah. thinking, you know, is that a point? Is, is that what you're kind of allowing? Like mm. specific images that rather than the ideas or rather than Yeah. But I don't know what you I think I mean I've got I've got um a friend Peter Laws, he's a Christian, he is a horror writer, he is um, involved in lots of like analysis and stories about the uncanny. I think his view uh, is, is, is quite hard to, to take even in terms of like when, when human bodies are distorted, uh, contorted and to like really hurt in movies. I think he uh, can, he views that in a different way to me, and I think there's a level of like when when humanity is kind of debased in a way, and there's no resolution to that, and there's no kind of a sense of hope. That's quite hard to take. That is quite a hard. Um, an example of a movie. I'll just give you one example of a movie that I think is absolutely brilliant. I went in to watch the movie, thinking this is going to be an endurance. My friend was really keen on seeing the film Mother by Darren Aronofsky. And I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be just, this is going to be just hard work. Has anyone seen any Aronofsky films? He's made uh, Noah, Pi, The Fountain, um, The Wrestler, Whale. Um, but Mother is a, an allegorical film. And the best thing about my experience I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, is within the first few minutes, I was like, oh wait, this is just an allegory. Oh, that's great. Now I can just enjoy the film as, as allegory. And actually, as an allegory, it works as like three or four different allegories. I think it's a genius film. It is very chaotic, and it is really horrible. Some of the stuff that happens in that film it is genuinely some of the most horrible things. There's a scene in it where a mother and a father, they're allegorical. They're not a real mother and a father. They might be a god and a human. They might be an artist and an idea. So it's a, the, 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 the father is the artist and the, the mother is the muse, maybe. They're sitting in a room face to face. The mother is holding the newborn baby. And she knows that if her husband gets hold of the baby, it will go horribly wrong. So there, there's a sit-off, they're, they're sitting across from each other, and just for a moment, because they're sitting there for so long, she dozes off for a second, her eyes close, she wakes back up again, and the baby's gone. It's so horrible. And then what happens after that is even more horrible. But it's such a brilliant film, and I found it so, I mean, I find it so inspiring. Um, and the chaos in it is really clever, and, the, uh, I mean, in as, as a Christian or a Jewish 
allegory. It's, it's amazing. You, you see that Adam and Eve show up in these, this couple's house. Uh, Cain and Abel come along. The flood happens in their house. All of human history happens in their house. Um, it's so, so that is the kind of thing that I'd be very careful who I would recommend that film to. But like the, 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 the richness of the experience, I, I, and uh, Jennifer Lawrence at one point in that film does the most blood-curdling, most angry, sorrowful scream I've ever heard. And again, I find it's, it really touched me so much. I just, I really appreciated that she was able to do that because that scream to me almost symbolizes life now. That it's, it's such a beautiful encapsulation of, of sorrow nowadays. And that there was something that shared, I feel the solidarity, and I was talking about this idea of empathy and solidarity with that moment in that film when she does that incredible scream. She does some amazing screams in that movie, but there's just one particular one that's like, oh, oh, yeah. So there you go. There's an example of something I would recommend to some people and not to others. something that disturbs us and shape, like you said, watching Selma, it shakes us up and moves us in the direction towards reality, isn't mm. it? And then there's maybe, I mean, there are some films that, in a sense, I don't know what they're doing, just disturbing you or something, or I don't know, or just being, I don't know, um, yeah. Gratuitously disturbing. Gratuitously, I don't know, maybe, maybe even that, yeah, but. I can think of, yeah, I mean, in a way, the Bible is disturbing. Oh, yeah. Reading the Bible. Yeah. It should be. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it disturbs you out of your complacency. I, I, th I think the thing with, with parent, parenting is that there's this, this incredible treasure trove of films, if you're willing to do a little bit of seeking, mm -hmm. that will open things up for your kids. If you know, if you just have a sensitivity and a certain level of, yeah, a little bit of wisdom and when, when to kind of say, hey, there's this thing that we can experience together. My parents, again, I can't, I've just, I just asked them in preparation for this, I just asked them again, did you show us those movies on purpose? Why, why did you choose those? Oh, yeah, they seem like good ones at the time. I was like, I know, I, I don't understand. It was like it was heavy hitter after heavy hitter to get to get your your preteens to watch the Killing Fields. You know what? What? So, I appreciate that they did that. Uh, Aaron, you've got the only... yeah, sort of a connected question. <laughs> so, as a, as a parent, as a Christian, you know, I, I watch lots of different films, and I feel like I've got my Christian worldview and my biblical worldview. So, I feel like I'm equipped. I was received something that's anti-Christian in the film, I think, okay, I understand what they're trying to say, I've got my own view, but how do we equip our children to, you know, I want my children to experience a broad range of films yeah. and books and whatever, um, but how, how do I help them to come at it with that sort of that, that Christian critical thinking? Mm. Yeah. So how do you help children become 
critical thinkers. How do you help children become critical thinkers? I think I want to go back to what Martin Shaw is saying. Martin Shaw is saying, don't worry about the critical thinking. It's, there's something in your gut, you're connecting with something. There's a visceral, like myth making is, is truth, is truth find seeking and truth, yeah, truth telling in all kinds of weird and wonderful and sneaky ways. That's what myth making is. And so we don't sit around the campfire quite as much telling stories. We do read books, but that shared story experience now is often cinema. And so, yes, we can be analytical. And there's a joy to very mental films where you're trying to work something out. Inception, Tenet. I don't know if you guys found that those experiences fun or not. But I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is another way of approaching things where there's something happen on, on, a, on a core level where there's a resonance. And the, the lovely thing is, is that it's films that are really not faith films at all that are doing some amazing truth. And what a, what a beautiful thing that those, um, they're about and accessible. So you're talking about, yeah, expo exposing children to, I like the way films that do tr good truth telling. Yeah. And they, letting them sit with it. Yeah. Cliff, do you want to, yeah. yeah. Well, there is this subtle difference between what I call true life films and films which are made because somebody's got an idea and it puts it together. And the films which are always most powerful are based upon true life war films, you know, things like, uh, you know, short, the um, Axel Ridge, films which relate where people have gone through experiences. I went to see a film called One Light recently, and people sat in the cinema afterwards and watched because it, it is about true stories, and mm. so often we get mesmerised by somebody's ideas, and therefore all these, uh, this is where I think the negative influence, because a lot of films can be meaningless, they don't have any meaning. True life films because somebody's been through that. Mm. So the reality is, what do you think as a filmmaker when you make a film that's something that's real mm. that somebody's battened through? This is why, why even though wars are horrible, they, they put something in human nature that yeah. fights for for freedom. Yeah. You know, I, you know, the apartheid film, the films about that of racism in America mm. and in this country. Yeah. The film was made by. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is challenging. Should our children be looking at these? Because these are the real things rather than getting involved in mystery and mystery because it can distort the picture. Do more mystical and fantastical stories just have it distorted? Um, I think, I think all. Uh, very few films are meaningless because you wouldn't even be able to get a crew together. You wouldn't be able to inspire people. Maybe if you had enough money, but you wouldn't have the money because you wouldn't be able to get the film made. So almost every single film is very meaningful to someone. In the process of making the film, you can lose the meaning. That is absolutely true. You can have a great intention and then the film kind of goes off the rails and becomes absolute uh, uh, salad of ideas that are... Um, but nevertheless, I think there's as much value as in a retelling of a true life story 
and someone making something up and it resonates with you in a, in a completely, um, I mean, obvious thing for me uh, is Tolkien and the Silmarillion. That is a fantasy story, but Silmarillion has actually helped me give me actual real hope for my real life today, more than almost anything else. I would say including scripture. The Silmarillion has, has actually given me a, a real sense of hope. So there's a, I mean, some people look at Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion and all those things and see it as just dungeons and dragons and goblins and silliness, but I, clearly I don't. Uh, there's something that re is resonating with me. Uh, so it's both and, as far as I'm concerned. More people should be watching Ken Loach films. My goodness, of course they should. Um, for some people, that, that, uh, that it just is not why they go to the cinema, and that's a bit sad that they don't have that. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I, th I think there's both and. It's always very difficult to get in and ask a question here, so I've got three questions. Okay, good. Yes. Okay. Only one, because we're at time, so choose your one. That's really difficult. The one question. Life is difficult. Are you deprecatory or celebratory of BAFTAs and Oscars? So are you on the edge of your seat looking at these uh, things going on, or do you give them a wide berth? It's, it's professionals honoring each other. It's a club of people that are giving other people in the same club awards. So in that way, you're like, okay, so it's just a club of people. Like, that, it shouldn't be that meaningful. It is a way for, obviously, people to uh, have another little wave of promoting them. So you can see it in a quite cynical way, as the, the award season is about extra, um, sometimes people have, uh, have had their heart broken with a film, and then they get an award, and maybe that's one of the little things that might mend a bit of their heart in the making of it. So, I, I, you know, you watch award, award speeches, and, uh, and actors are really good at being, especially actors are very good at being super dramatic, you know. That's, that's their blessing. That's the blessing of actors is there. Uh, and then sometime you'll have a moment of true authenticity and you feel like, oh, that's a beautiful little moment. So I don't tend to, personally, I don't tend to pay much attention to it. Um, but there's little moments that come through and you're like, I'm glad that happened. That person was honored for something that they did really well. I remember watching Tilda Swinton in Michael Clayton and thinking, oh, wait a moment. So this woman is acting as if she's someone else in the film. So the character themselves is acting as if they're someone else. I was like, that, that's really difficult to do. So this, this is a character who's pretending to be someone else in the film. This is like Oscar worthy, but that will never happen. She got an Oscar for that film. I was like, oh, right, right. So like, I'm glad someone else re realized that what she did was incredibly difficult. So, yeah. You wouldn't use the, I mean, you, where would you research film? What do you use to research films in sense of, obviously, the Oscars are not, when people are thinking, okay, I want to show some film to my child, or do you mm. go somewhere and look and 
that helps you think about that or, or just, just watch the film first yourself? A t a a tra trailers are now two and a half minutes. Actually, trailers have been, yeah, around two or three minutes long. Yeah. Usually watch 50 seconds of a trailer. That usually does the trick. And stop the trailer because they start moving into the second act of the movie and then they start moving into the third act of the movie in the trailer itself. So usually within about a minute of watching a trailer, you can, even if they're spinning it as a great movie, usually you can, I can tell whether it's yeah. worth my time or whether it's, yeah, my vibe, so. Thanks, Joel. We're, we're at time, but I'm sure you've got questions you want to ask Joel. You're I'll be around. Stay, stay yeah. The night, yeah. So you can ask him all night if you want to. Uh, thanks for coming. And um, glad Marsh bumped into you at um, Touchmeet. Mm. And yeah, good. I hope, I hope uh, we get to see you again. But thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you very much. Thank you.